Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello and welcome to Live Life Better, brought to you by Virgin and Penguin Living. I'm Melissa Hemsley and today I will be talking about sleep, the big one. I have been massively looking forward to this particular episode. We've been touching on it in previous podcasts of Live Life Better and now we get to talk about nothing but sleep today. I'm feeling very lucky to be joined by the only professor of sleep science in the whole entire world. <laughs> Hello. I hope that was right. <laughs> yep. Professor Jason Ellis. His new book, The One Week Insomnia Cure, offers solutions to those most challenged by the nighttime hours. Welcome, Jason. Thank you, Melissa. And also joining us today is the wonderful Kate Faithful Williams, a health coach extraordinaire and co-author of the best-selling The Feel Good Plan. Hello, Kate. Hi, Melissa. You've never met, have you? Only earlier just now. Very briefly, but it was good. Yeah, because I know. <laughs> it was a good meeting of mine. <laughs> and Kate brought us some chocolate treats to, to kick us off today as well. So I she... did. I had to make your happiness balls. They're so yummy. We're, we're slightly buzzing off that feel goodness. So actually, on that note, I wanted to say, how did you both sleep last night? I mean, I'm a little bit tired. I was actually thinking so much about sleep and started to <laughs> gently observe yeah. how I was falling asleep excited about today. How did you sleep? Well, actually, I had a dinner party last night, which ended quite late in the evening. How late is late? Yeah. About half past two Ooh. this morning. <laughs> it was great dinner. Yeah. <laughs> so not as well as normal, but actually it's good. Yeah. Feeling buzzed and I know exactly what to do tonight. So Okay, well, that's what I want to know. Yes. Okay, so I'm coming back to you. And, and Kate, how did you sleep? Well, last night was kind of okay, except for the fact my baby was up at 5.30, which means I am too. She doesn't really cry so much in the morning, but she does shout, yeah, yeah, mum, mum. And it's it's a very enthusiastic start to the day, but I'm a bit weary at 5.30am. Mm -hmm. What's your key productive hour range of the day? I would say between like 10 and 11, I can get a lot of stuff done. That's your good hour? Yeah. Mm. And Jason, for you? About eight o'clock at night. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, that's I really start I didn't to excel. expect that. Yep. I start to excel around eight o'clock in the evening. It's part of my genetic makeup. I'm an evening person. Uh, You're an owl. I am an owl. Very much so. Okay. So let's kick off then with sleep. So, Jason. Mm. I read that you spend quite a lot of time watching people sleep. I do. How much of being a professor of sleep is involved in watching? And will you be in the room with them or will you set up a camera? <laughs> What's best? So I have a sleep laboratory in Newcastle. And what we have is they've got a room to sleep in. And then I'll be in a room next door with my students or my postdocs. And we're watching people sleep through CCTV. So we are watching them and observing what they're doing, but we're not interrupting them because we want to see how they sleep, when they sleep, and the sorts of things that really interrupt their sleep. Mm -hmm. Do they not get kind of distracted by being watched? They do. It's what we call the first night effect. 
So anyone who comes into the laboratory, for the first night, we don't really use any of that data. Because as you imagine, we're putting a lot of electrodes all over oh, someone's head yeah. and then on their chest and on their legs. And there's not that many people who say, oh, you know, let's go to bed dress up like the Borg and have a sleep. <laughs> so in essence, the first night we always get rid of that. And then it's the second night and the third night that we actually start to see the real sleep coming through. Uh -huh. It's great stuff. Kate, do you watch your baby sleep? Mm. Do you find that relaxing or do you just sort of look at them going, please carry on sleeping? Well, <laughs> when they were both newborn, I used to like watching them sleep. But you're all kind of glowy and you've got these amazing hormones going on and you're just like looking at your tiny baby in your arms. And it is just the loveliest, loveliest feeling. Is that you getting I'm emotional? suddenly got a yeah. bit choked up thinking about it. Oh. They're so gorgeous. But then you're thinking, I'm so tired. I'm so tired. <laughs> and you're jealous of the sleep they've robbed from you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's an incredible feeling of like overwhelm and anxiousness. So even though, you know, you're looking at your baby and you kind of know they're peaceful and happy, you're thinking, ah, am I doing everything right? And of course, you can't. So you just have to roll with it. Best way to do it. Roll with it. Right. Could you tell us a bit about your book? This is mm. this is the first? This is the... This is the first book. This is the first book. First book. So it's the One Week Insomnia Cure. And in essence, what we've done is we've created a tailored program for people who are suffering from insomnia. So it's based around the fact of, do I have insomnia or is it something else? Because there's no point in trying to give somebody a cure for insomnia if they've got some other sleep problem. If they have then let's see what we can do to manage that. And it's a step-by-step -step process, but it is tailored to the individual. So what they've got to do is there's a little bit of maths involved. They've got to work out how much they're sleeping. And then it creates a schedule around how much time they're allowed in bed over the next week and then how much time they're allowed in bed after that. So it's lots of different rules about behaviours and change. Mm. What I like is that it's mm. gentle and it feels doable. And I like how you say, you know, we're not going to say you're an insomniac. No. Because then you're putting far too much pressure on defining yourself as this person. And it's actually about learning, mm. understanding and working it out. So Absolutely. it's kind. It's a yeah. kind book. It's not a... <laughs> it's a kind Not book. a bossy book. It's not a bossy book. <laughs> because people are already probably quite fragile if they're not sleeping. People are fragile when they're not sleeping, yeah. as, as any new mum would yeah. know. You kind of, you beat yourself up about it. Of course. Like, sleep should be a total, natural, normal human function. And you think, oh God, I can't even sleep properly. What's wrong with me? Yeah, absolutely. And there's nothing like being awake at a weird hour to be completely irrational. Now, funny you say that because there is actually a neurological reason for that. Oh, tell me. Because parts of the brain that really cover rational thought, problem solving, even though we might be awake at that time of the night, those parts of the brain have down-regulated, so they're not functioning at full steam. Mm -hmm. And so that's why we have those irrational thoughts in the middle of the night. We wake up and suddenly the dishwasher can become a source of evil. <laughs> it's wonderful. It always is a source of evil. <laughs> and it's just because those problem solving and those rational parts of the brain aren't really functioning as well. Kate, in your book yes. that you co-authored with Dalton Wong, yes. The Feel Good Plan, you talk a lot about sleep as having a major role in feeling good. And as you say, it should be this very natural thing. And I come from a food background and feel good food. But I always say to people straight away when they say to me, you know, I, I do all the right things, I buy all the right ingredients, and I say, but do you relax and sleep? <laughs> and I feel that you cover that quite well in your book. It's the, the important part of it all, and it's the free part of it all. Yeah, sleep is like the missing pillar 
in well-being. And, you know, we talk a lot about food and about exercise, but sleep is the thing that is going to make you feel the best. There's lots of anxiety about kind of getting like a body a certain way and eating certain foods. But if you're not sleeping, all of those things aren't going to come together. And why is it that we find the sleeping part, which should be the simplest part, being free, being, you know, we all we all have our bed, you know, beds are lovely. Mm. Why does a bed become the... Another, place of nightmares. Yeah, the place mm. of nightmares. Or why do we put it off? Are we trying to get too much into the day? What is it? When you speak to your clients that you work with or your readers? Well, I think we're busy, busy, busy all day. And we're not giving ourselves the downtime so that by the time we get to the evening, like our brain is sort of, it's kind of worn out, but agitated. Yeah, so stimulated, isn't it? Totally overstimulated. And then we can't really slow down our thoughts so much and just let go and sleep. Also, I think there's been this culture of go, 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 achieve, achieve, smash that, smash that. Yeah. And then you think, you know, there's also been this idea of it sleeps for wimps or mm. that person was yeah. so successful and they survived on four hours of sleep. <laughs> yeah. You know, why, why do I need it? Or, you know, what, what's that saying? I don't like it. It's like, you know, you can sleep when you're dead. That's it. Yeah. People do. Why have we done that to ourselves? We do have a culture and it's it's not been very recent. It's been around forever and ever. And we talk about hours of sleep and, you know, nine hours for a fool, for example. And it's that thing about cramming everything in. And we're taught today that we have to be beautiful, we have to eat well, we have to go to the gym, we have to work really hard and be productive. Where's all this time coming from? Yes, there are not enough hours in the day. Exactly. And what we do is we tend to sacrifice sleep as the first of those things. If we need to get to the gym, well, you know what, I'll go in the morning. I'll get up an hour earlier and I'll go to the gym. Or I'll go to the gym before bedtime. And it's those times that are impinging upon what we would see as a natural sleep state. And in fact, going to the gym before bedtime is not great for you because mm. like cortisol, the stress hormone, you need it to get up and exercise and it's like, it's a stimulatory thing. But that's not going to help you sleep. So if you're getting all this cortisol going up when you're exercising, like you might blitz your time on the cross trainer or something, but you're not going to find it that easy to wind down afterwards. Mm. So in the evening, it's kind of better to do like what I call working in, more like yoga and Pilates and stretching. Yeah. Nice. Stuff. I like yoga in my bed. Yeah. So my ultimate sleep tip that really does work, if you're lying in bed to kind of relax and just let go of your day, think of three things that you're grateful for. Like not generic things like, oh, family, friends, blah, blah, blah. You need to be really specific. So it could be like, I don't know, an amazing happiness ball that someone made for you. Or it could be like a little cuddle with your dog or something that just made you smile. Or getting a really nice text from a friend. You know, just something that just makes you smile and it really helps you relax and make you think, OK, I'm grateful to be here. I'm just going to embrace tomorrow. I love that. Again, really simple, mm. free and nice to do. So, Jason, back mm. to you for a second. Yep. The professor. OK. <laughs> professor of sleep. Tell us, mm. you know, were you a child fascinated by dreams and sleep? Did you say one day this will be me when I'm a grown up? What happened? Actually, a series of very fortunate accidents. I wanted to be a history professor and I signed up to do a history degree and I got signed on to the wrong programme. Believe it or not, I was... An admin error? An admin error, and I got signed on to the psychology programme. How serendipitous. Uh, wonderful, isn't it? And I was told, you know, you either have to wait for a year and sign up or do psychology for six months and see if somebody drops out. And so I did the whole psychology thing and realised very quickly it's not just about mother and couches and did quite well at it. And then in our final year, we had to go and work in the community for a month. 
And all of my colleagues were talking about, oh, I want to go and work with children and see how they play or see how they develop language. And the tutor said to me, and what would you like to do, Jason? And I said, oh, I want to do death. <laughs> and she said, oh, we don't do death, dear. And so I said, well, what's the closest thing to death? And she said, sleep. And that was it. I signed up at St. Thomas's in London, went there, ended up staying there for a whole year, loved it so much. And then I remember talking to Simon, who was running the lab in uh, St. Thomas's, and I said to Simon, what happens to all those people? And she said, what people? And I said, well, the people who've got insomnia. I said, you're really good with narcolepsy, you're good with apnea, all of the other really intrinsic basic sleep disorders, but what about all these people that keep coming in or calling that have got insomnia? And she said, we've got nothing for them. We just send them back to their GP. And that was the point. I said, no, that's we've got to do something about that. How long ago was this? Sorry, what a question. <laughs> Roughly, sort of it was, 10 years. Just uh, uh, no, no, it was, a, it was a wee bit longer than 10 years. It was 1999. So, wow. Yeah. Oh my goodness! And so, how many people have, have now followed <laughs> yeah. that? Have now followed your your sort of way of working and gone right? Let's put sleep back up the agenda. Let's look at sleep and mental health. Let's look mm. at sleep and and gut health. Let's look at sleep and all of these modern day issues or the things mm. that people are going to their GPs for. You know, what what are GPs? Do you know saying to patients now when they come in and they come yeah. in with lots of symptoms? How much do they ask? How often do you sleep? Is that a question? It's not part of their training. Uh, which is an interesting part. Medics don't really get trained in sleep medicine. I think they get, a, on average, about five minutes. And that is going to be about more of the sleep apnea, where people stop breathing at night, or some of the other sleep disorders. When it comes down to insomnia, really, GPs, a lot of them don't have the knowledge mm. that we can treat insomnia without medication. But in most respects, what they're trying to do is stay away from the medication. So they're offering a lot of lifestyle advice, which we know doesn't actually work. And so that's the problem that we've still got. But I tell you, they're getting better. GPs are calling me now and saying, what do I do? Buy the book. <laughs> that's, that would be the right answer, I think, yeah. But that's brilliant. Mm. So when they when they call to you, and I guess that's why you've put your years of knowledge into the book, is that so a GP can read it yep. in their free time. They can suggest to patients to read it. Yep. We can all suggest it to a friend who's, you know, on the edge of tears because they're so tired. We can read it in those weird hours of the night when we wake up thinking, what is going on with me? Yeah. Are there what gentle chapters? I mean, if someone does wake up in the middle of the night, is there a gentle part that you recommend that they could read? Or would you say, do you know what, steer clear, just... Like, what is your top tip for the middle of the night angst? I think, right, if, if you wake up in the middle of the night, and you might wake up because you need to go to, for a wee, mm -hmm. and that's OK. The problem, more and more as we get older. Oh, absolutely. absolutely. <laughs> now, I've, now I've revealed 1999. Um, and so the difficulty is... is it's, that's normal, that's natural. But it's when you get back into bed afterwards, it's that time, if you can't get back off to sleep at that point, get out of bed. Yes. Actually, the key is get out of bed. What you will start to do is associate the bedroom with somewhere that is a daytime place. You'll start to read. You'll start to you know, use your computer or your tablet. You'll start to play games. You'll have a munch. You might get a drink. When suddenly you've got a bed sit going on and you've lost all those cues for sleep. Mm -hmm. Those cues are now for daytime and the bed, mm. not sleep and bed. 
okay, so I probably shouldn't have my dog on the bed either, should I? I know that. I know that. I'm terrible. Kate. So cute you sleep with your dog. I know. She's, she's amazing. She's my hot water bottle. It's cold. What can I do? Um, so, Kate, The Feel Good Plan. Yes. Love that title. You co-wrote this with Dalton. Dalton's been on this series before. Oh, has he? Um, <laughs> what was he talking about? The Feel Good Plan. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> You're both very good at it. How did you come up with the idea to write it? How did you meet? Tell us a bit about the story. Well, actually, the idea came up when I was on maternity leave with my first daughter. And prior to that, I had been health editor at Grazia. And I had all of these like amazing contacts. And I was sent to like spas all over the world to experience like amazing detoxes and having like a private chef and a personal trainer and all this jazz. It was amazing. Then I was on maternity leave and I was like, oh, I'm just by myself trying to do it all. And I thought there needs to be like a guide for people who don't have access to like the five star treatment, which is kind of, you know, everyone to make it happen for themselves. Mm. Little day to day things we can do. Exactly. To bring home. So every single thing, every single tip in the book is designed to make you feel better. What's not to like? Exactly. <laughs> what can we actually do to help each other out? You've got some great tips, Kate, don't you? From meditation. Love that name. Did you invent that? I did invent that name. That's genius. That it's cool. <laughs> it's like meditation you can do in bed. I thought it had a really calming feel to it. It's absolutely genius. I hope you've brought all the domain names around that. I haven't. Quick. <laughs> quick <laughs> them up. We know what that's Kate's going to do after this. That's the kind of thing that will keep me awake at night. No. <laughs> like, oh, no, I didn't. I meant to. Do you wish you'd come up with meditation? I love it. I think yeah. that's brilliant. Yeah. I'm not going to go and buy the domains. Don't worry. <laughs> so tell, tell us about meditation. So the idea is that it's a way to focus your breathing when you're lying in bed. It will stop your head spinning. So you're just going to do a big, deep, diaphragmatic breath. Should we do it now? Let's do it now. Okay. I love that. Okay, so everyone so, do it now. Okay. Yeah. Sometimes it helps if you like to put your hand on your tummy so you can kind of feel. Okay, so you're going to breathe in for a big count of three. Like one, two, three. You're going to hold it for three. And then you're going to let exhale with a whooshing sound, like And then you're going to breathe in again for a count of three. Hold it again. And now exhale with a big whooshing sound. Okay, we could do this for the whole podcast, but you're kind <laughs> of, you're getting the idea. Already. It really does encourage you to let go. And when you're mentally tense, you maybe don't realise how physically tense you are as well and how that is restricting your breathing. And so if you're inhaling more and exhaling more, then you've got a better flow of oxygen, which is much more calming. Is it particularly important to do the whooshing breath or can we do... Is, is that the really important bit to get the, the breathing out? Well, that's the way to kind of exhale all that stale air. Mm -hmm. Admittedly, some people, my husband, find it a bit distracting before he goes to sleep and he's like, that's not calming. I love it. I lo it really I, works for me. So it's not a, it's not a, in my head, I was imagining you and all your beautiful family doing it together. No, it's not often the way, is it? The people we love the most don't actually pay attention to what we say. No, no. Um, and often we can get, we need to be reminded as well, don't we? We're only oh, yeah. human. Yeah. Taking your own lessons, hard thing. Well, it is. I'll tell you one good thing about having the dog in the bed. Yeah. Is that she sighs a lot. Okay. So it reminds me when she goes, <sighs> it reminds me to take a breath. And I actually find her breathing very relaxing. Animals do it naturally. Yeah. 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 So one that's one good pro reason to have your dog in the bed, though you shouldn't really, <laughs> because it gets very hot in the bedroom as well when she's in there. Actually, we could talk about that now. You mm. call it sleep hygiene, I don't do you? I call it sleep I hygiene. I sort of called it my bedtime routine, but I like the term sleep hygiene. Mm. Tell us about your what you would do. 
what I would do. Well, the first thing to say about sleep hygiene is it doesn't cause a sleep problem. So bad sleep hygiene doesn't cause a sleep problem and it won't fix one on its own. But what it does do is it, it offers a level of protection over your sleep. So these are a set of rules about what things you should and shouldn't do before bedtime. So you shouldn't really eat a big meal. And we've talked about that. You shouldn't really exercise too close to bedtime either. As Kate said, cortisol, not so good for sleeping. You should make sure the bedroom's cool, dark and quiet because we know that noise and light and temperature, especially heat, will wake us up. They don't always have to wake us up that they can fragment the sleep so we're not getting a real big deep chunk of sleep and that's what's really doing us in is that we're not getting these big chunks of consolidated deep sleep yeah that's what's really restorative mm. having i mean i speak as someone who's had all the fragments of sleep in the, world <laughs> the last year my baby's only 13 months yeah that'll do it and once you start getting like the big chunks of sleep you just feel like a superhero yeah and those those big chunks of sleep, they're really important for us in our long term as well. This is the time that we fix the immune system. This is the time we repair damage to the cells. We repair muscle damage. This is where we clear out toxins out of the brain. And so it's about getting those deep, refreshing parts of sleep. That That's the mm. most important bit. I wanted to ask, what is a good chunk of sleep for you, Kate? What, what was your dream scenario? What makes you Ooh, reset? I, my dream scenario... <laughs> <laughs> Look at you like looking a... off into the sky as oh, you said that. Hand on heart. Oh, a my wistful goodness. wistful moment. Yeah. I would love 11 hours. <laughs> oh, that's delicious. Yeah. That's the delicious factor I, I think you never regret a long sleep. When was the last time you got 11 hours? I then? don't even know. I can't even think about it or I'll cry. <laughs> so 11 hours would be 10 out of 10 dream scenario. Yeah. What's a, like a, a decent, happy with, feeling good chunk? I feel, I feel good on seven. Yeah. But I feel better on seven when that seven doesn't, end at 5.30am. Mm. That just is just a bit of brutal time of day. Yeah. Mm. Especially in the winter. Yeah. Oh, gosh, yeah. And Jason, what's what's a nice chunk for you? What do you, what would you recommend in, in your book? Well, there's no fixed norm. Mm. What we do know is there's sort of groupings by age. So adults such as us, and I'm, I'm going to classify us all as adults today, that's <laughs> anywhere between, yeah, grown up, <laughs> anywhere between seven and nine is generally good. Outside of that, when you start to talk about six to ten, that's okay, and that just counts for people being different. When you can move outside of that and you go 5 and 12, then there's a problem. So for me personally, I am a seven-hour, I was going to say seven-hour boy, but a seven-hour man. <laughs> I'm a seven-hour man. We're all grown-ups here. So I'm seven hours. If I get seven hours, I'm tip-top, I'm great to go. I can survive on about six, five and a half not which things start to go for you when you've had a uh, not had enough because I know mine mine are get snappy yeah mm -hmm. if I've not had a good night's sleep I'll avoid making major decisions yeah, yeah. Um, I can't think straight. I can't even mm. say the word decisions because I didn't get my good <laughs> night's sleep last night it was so funny then you know I've been actually sleeping having a good run of sleep and then mm. and it was so funny as I was falling asleep last night I also got up to pee in the middle of the night and then I lay there and I thought I imagined what we might talk about today and I think probably what we're all saying here is it's never perfect yeah and that you also said before you had your mm. 2 30 uh, dinner yes. party yes and you knew you knew how to look after yourself better today didn't yeah. you tell us about that so what would you do knowing that when you've had a, a short run of it and you want to catch up or, you can't really catch up on sleep can you, you can just help yourself and well, be you, gentler could you you can, can um you? it takes a little bit of time the 
the body is an amazing source because it will correct itself. So one of the things that I tend to do is if I do have a, a, a short run, let's say I'm working nights or, for example, if I have dinner parties which end at 2.30 in the morning. Um, and what we do, what I do in that instance is tonight I'm going to go to bed exactly the same. I'm not going to do anything. It's when we start to compensate for sleep that that's the problem. And it's, oh, sometimes it's I moodiness. get in bed so early. Do Just, you? Yeah. Oh, God. And how much of that time are you spending then looking at the ceiling or...? OK, last night, mm. I think we were in bed about 9.30. And then I read for, like, I don't know, 15 minutes, and I thought, I can't do this anymore. It turned out the light just went to sleep. And then I slept through solidly till 5.30. Wow. That's and, pretty healthy, yeah. And that kind of felt okay. But, I mean, it's not the way I would choose to live my life as mm. a permanent thing. Like, I like going out. Mm. <laughs> yeah, I would, exactly. I would really like to not be in bed at 9.30. <laughs> but for the moment, I have a 5.30 wake-up call. So I've kind of got to work with that. Yeah, you've got extenuating circumstances, yeah. which mean you're up at 5.30. So here we are talking about our delicious like dream scenarios of sleep. Mm. What if you can't get to sleep? So shall we talk about the people that suffer from insomnia? Yeah. Um, because they're the people that really need you, don't they? Yes. And they'll really appreciate all of these tips. You know, they might listen to the, the things we've said so far and think, mm. that would just be the perfect day for me. Yeah. What if they're already so far from even falling asleep? Yeah. What are we saying to them? Well, the thing is, is A, don't ignore it. Mm -hmm. You know, we know about a third of the population suffer from what we would call acute insomnia every single year and that's where you've got a sleep problem and it's between sort of two weeks and three months long why do we say two weeks it's interesting because before that actually when we start to get insomnia the first two weeks of insomnia is normal that's normal and that's natural that's your body adapting you've had something stressful happen or you know, it doesn't even have to be a major life event it could be the fact that you're caregiving and the washing machine breaks down that's enough to push you over the edge. And so what you'll do is you'll lose sleep naturally to try to compensate and cope with those situations, with that stress. Your body can't cope with too much of that. You can only produce so much cortisol and then you're uh, in a bit of a bother. <laughs> and so after about two weeks, most people, it will go away. The insomnia will just dissipate because you need to go back to normal sleep. What tends to happen, however, is it's how we compensate for it during that early phase. We'll go to bed early. We'll have a lie-in. We'll have a nap. We'll drink lots of coffee. We'll avoid people. These are all the things that we do when we don't feel great about ourselves. We talked about mood. Mm. We don't feel in a great mood. We don't want to go and visit people. We don't want to be seen. Now, what happens after that is it then becomes self-perpetuating. So whatever caused the insomnia in the first place, that's gone, that's sorted, or it's still there, but it's not biologically keeping the insomnia alive. We keep insomnia alive through our behaviours mm. and our thoughts and our feelings, and then we get in our own heads. And so what would I say to somebody who's got insomnia, who's had it for a long time? What they need to do is they need to get something called cognitive behavioural therapy for insomnia. It works, it works beautifully well, and it really does focus on them and it's tailored to them and it will give them the power to fix their own sleep. How do they go about getting it? There are some interesting ways these days. For a long time, it's been quite unavailable. There's not many of us trained in the UK to deliver it. But now there is some online versions. 
there's a beautiful book, I believe, <laughs> that if you want to do it yourself... <laughs> I'm you looking at it right now. I know, right? If you don't want to actually go to the GP and you don't want to engage with the internet, for example, pick up the book. It's exactly the same. We're going through every single technique and doing it that way. But if you want some support, see your GP and ask specifically for CBTI. CBTI, Cognitive Behavioural Therapy for Insomnia. Exactly. Mm. And it will be then their responsibility to find it for you. And you said about a third of the population. Mm. Wow. How has that changed in the last, I don't know, 10 years or so? We are starting to see lots more cases of insomnia. Yeah. So we're seeing a lot more presentation. Whether that's about people's knowledge about insomnia now and people are coming forward. Mm -hmm. Because if we think about it, and again, it goes back to that whole issue around sleep where we talked about... Oh, sleep is for wimps. I'll sleep when I'm dead. You mm. snooze, you lose. Well, now we're actually starting to say, well, actually, if you don't sleep, there are consequences in the longer term. And so maybe that's the point that we're seeing a lot more insomnia coming forward because people are recognising it and wanting to do something about it because they know that there are problems later on. What impacts get people most frightened or... The main thing that I see from patients when they come to see me, they're very frightened about cancer. They're very frightened about coronary artery disease. They're very frightened about crashing their car. You know, so it goes across the whole range. The other problem I see a lot is people are drinking more and they're using it as a sedative. Mm. Alcohol is a sedative. And so a lot of people who come to see me, that's what they're trying. And then, of course, when they stop trying using alcohol the problem is is that the insomnia then rebounds back gosh yeah it could be very wide reaching and also mm. you're seeing all age levels as Absolutely. well is it, is it more men than women as well or it's widespread it's widespread um but what you are seeing is when we look at the data around insomnia it's generally twice as many women than men that will have insomnia oh really now, why is that we don't really know why there's been lots of studies around the world, so it's not just a UK phenomenon or an American phenomenon. What we do think is there's partly, one, men are not likely to report it. Oh. Part of that whole machismo, I will not go and see a GP because I'm not sleeping very well. And they will see it as a symptom rather than a disorder in its own right. So that may be part of the issue. Because actually, women generally sleep better than men. Oh. Mm. When we start to look at how much consolidated sleep they tend to get, women tend to always do better than men. Interesting. Mm. I'm Melissa Hemsley and this is Live Life Better. We've been discussing just how important sleep is. And until very recently, science knew very little about why we sleep. But now, in the first book of its kind, Matthew Walker explores the science behind sleep and gets to the bottom of a mystery that's evaded us for millennia. Do you think you got enough sleep this past week? Can you recall the last time you woke up without an alarm clock feeling refreshed, not needing caffeine? If the answer to either of these questions is no, you are not alone. Two-thirds of adults throughout all developed nations fail to obtain the recommended eight hours of nightly sleep. The World Health Organization and the National Sleep Foundation both stipulate an average of eight hours of sleep per night for adults. I doubt you are surprised by this fact, but you may be surprised by the consequences. Routinely sleeping less than six or seven hours a night demolishes your immune system, more than doubling your risk of cancer. 
Insufficient sleep is a key lifestyle factor determining whether or not you will develop Alzheimer's disease. Inadequate sleep, even moderate reductions for just one week, disrupts blood sugar levels so profoundly that you would be classified as pre-diabetic. Short sleeping increases the likelihood of your coronary arteries becoming blocked and brittle, setting you on a path toward cardiovascular disease, stroke and congestive heart failure. Fitting Charlotte Bronte's prophetic wisdom that a ruffled mind makes a restless pillow, sleep disruption further contributes to all major psychiatric conditions, including depression, anxiety and suicidality. Perhaps you have also noticed a desire to eat more when you're tired. This is no coincidence. Too little sleep swells concentrations of a hormone that makes you feel hungry while suppressing a companion hormone that otherwise signals food satisfaction. Despite being full, you still want to eat more. It's a proven recipe for weight gain in sleep-deficient adults and children alike. Worse, should you attempt to diet but don't get enough sleep while doing so, it is futile, since most of the weight you lose will come from lean body mass, not fat. Add the above health consequences up, and a proven link becomes easier to accept. The shorter you sleep, the shorter your lifespan. The old maxim, I'll sleep when I'm dead, is therefore unfortunate. Adopt this mindset, and you will be dead sooner, and the quality of that shorter life will be worse. The elastic band of sleep deprivation can stretch only so far before it snaps. Sadly, human beings are in fact the only species that will deliberately deprive themselves of sleep without legitimate gain. Every component of wellness and countless seams of societal fabric are being eroded by our costly state of sleep neglect, human and financial alike. So much so that the World Health Organization, or WHO, has now declared a sleep loss epidemic throughout industrialized nations. It is no coincidence that countries where sleep time has declined most dramatically over the past century, such as the US, the UK, Japan and South Korea, and several in Western Europe, are also those suffering the greatest increase in rates of the aforementioned physical diseases and mental disorders. Scientists such as myself have even started lobbying doctors to start prescribing sleep. As medical advice goes, it's perhaps the most painless and enjoyable to follow. Do not, however, mistake this as a plea to doctors to start prescribing more sleeping pills. Quite the opposite, in fact, considering the alarming evidence surrounding the deleterious health consequences of these drugs. But can we go so far as to say that a lack of sleep can kill you outright? Actually, yes. So that was Matthew Walker talking about his best-selling book, Why We Sleep. So it seems that in today's world, we don't allow much time for sleep. We said before that we're cramming too many things in. We're also surrounded by, we haven't talked about this yet, the things that buzz and light up the room. Digital distractions. Digital distractions, yes. Now, we talked a little bit before, you said don't turn your bedroom into a bedsit. Yeah. <laughs> and I love that. I'm going to think about that. Kate, what about you? You said you like to have a book in bed. Yeah. A good old-fashioned... An old-fashioned way. So tell us a little bit about how does our relationship with technology affect the quality of the sleep we're getting these days? Well, 
there are a couple of things going on. First of all, the say if I'm looking at my phone before bed, I could be checking my work emails or I could be shopping, which is a sort of endless habit which can just keep going and, you know, interrupt my nighttime hours. Or I could be looking at Instagram, which is like one of my favourite things, but I can get a bit distracted and I go down this rabbit hole and then suddenly it's like I've lost a couple of hours of my time. And it sends so many thoughts off spinning that I'm not really concentrating on calming down when I should be. And the other issue really is the blue light that's Mm. flickering. So basically that's a light that interrupts our melatonin so, which is our sleepy hormone. So we're having difficulty getting enough melatonin to switch off and let go. Mm. So maybe we could be, I don't know, listening to a relaxing podcast. What or about a relaxing a podcast? Relaxing podcast. Or perhaps a... Hey, um, you're doing the right thing right now, guys. <laughs> a, a, a meditation app or something mm. like that. Yeah. I mean, we should try. And I I've always been app. told that technology in all forms would be ideally taken out of the bedroom but ideally but if we did have to have some technology mm-hmm. let's avoid the blue lights right yeah but then going back to what kate's saying it's not just about the blue light because now i'm seeing lots of people who are coming to me and they're saying well you know i don't want to take technology out of the bedroom this is happening to a lot of our teenagers so i got a blue blocker screen Ooh. is that all right now and i say no Because exactly what Kate's saying, you're checking your email. You're waiting for that next instant message. You're checking Instagram. We're looking for the hit, aren't we? We're looking for the hit. And it's what we call a cognitive arousal. It's not just about the suppression of melatonin. It's actually that we get very aroused. None of us check our email at 11 o'clock at night and then get swiftly into bed and fall asleep. Mm. You know, we're being busy and we're starting to think about tomorrow. And if you start checking your email, you start checking your you know apps and all of those sorts of things it's going to provoke tomorrow and you get that constant feeling of like all these things on your to-do list that Mm. you're supposed to have done Mm. and you haven't done them because we make impossible to-do lists for ourselves and you get that feeling like oh my god where did my day go and you're trying to catch up and constantly on the back foot and that's really stressful thought to go to bed with Mm. so in general we should just try to before we set foot into the bedroom forego the stimulation or the cognitive arousal, cognitive is that arousal. Like yeah, that? Yeah. and try and step into the bedroom with our best foot forward which mm. is without technology knowing that everything can wait till the next morning yeah, yeah. okay okay i want some more tips from you so okay. we talked a bit before jason was saying about let's get it dark in the bedroom what can we do practically um Ooh, i like yeah. an eye mask what about you i like an eye mask i really like a silk one and I kind of I push it onto my face a bit like if you warm up your palms like rub your hands together and then like push onto your eye sockets then it's a really nice sort of calming little eye bath for you and then put your sleep mask on and I also have blackout blinds to make it really super dark in my bedroom yeah it's worth investing Mm. in these things for sleep isn't it I mean an eye mask is nice and cheap Um, you could upgrade to to the better ones but next time it's you know Valentine's Day or Christmas (laughs) or something like that but easy ways to give it a go and I always say to people when they say I'm struggling with this I'm struggling with that go for the quick first wins right go for the wins eye mask you can get one anywhere what else could we do I really invest in what I call my loungewear, okay. <laughs> um, which is basically pajamas mm-hmm. or something really nice and, and loose and that yeah. I feel comfortable. Loose and comfy. Yeah. Because actually wearing something uncomfortable in bed, like tight clothing, can restrict your production of melatonin, which you need. So get some really soft, lovely things to wear in bed. Silk is great. Silk is great. Because it helps with temperature regulation as yes. well. When it's hot, 
it'll cool you down. When it's cold, it warms you up. So silk pyjamas are perfect. I don't have a pair. Oh. I'm going to get some. Silk PJs. Okay, there, there we go. go. And now... I really want to know about this. So I've always been told that the best... I know you said you're a night owl, mm. but I've always been told that in an ideal world, you go to bed about 10. Ooh. Am I wrong? You go to bed <laughs> around 10 and... Well, you go to bed early and wake up early. Mm. So, you know, and this this is um, dependent, of course, on, on the season. So, you know, in the summer, you might be waking up with dawn at about five or six, yep. but going to bed... Am I wrong? Am I right? What are right. your thoughts here? You're right in lots of ways there, but it's really about how tired you are. You only go to bed when you're tired and you get up when you're not tired. You know, the acid test is how are you feeling in the morning? If you're not feeling great in the morning when you wake up, then there's probably something wrong with the quality, the quantity, or indeed the timing. And that's something that you might want to experiment with. Go to bed when you're tired. Mm. You know, we set ourselves... That's so the... easier said than done, though. <laughs> I know, you know, I know. I <laughs> when know you're like, the world, yes. You're watching TV and kind of... Or, or maybe like you're having a night out with your friends and mm. the last thing you're thinking about is, oh, I really want to go to bed because you're thinking, I want to enjoy some nice, relaxing adult mm. time. And that definitely has its value. But yeah. then you're kind of balancing that against how you're going to feel in the morning. But again, it's how you compensate for that the next day. Yes. Don't do anything about it. So also, as you were saying, normal. being a night owl, mm. for you, it's better to stay up that bit later and that works for you. So we should really start to, to see how what works best for us, right? And Absolutely. also what fits into our lifestyle. Some people maybe are forcing themselves to go to bed early when it's not their dream time. And it often happens when you have a partner who sleeps at different times from you as well. Oh, yeah. 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 That can be tricky. Napping. I wanted to ask mm. about napping. So kids nap. Kids nap. They Should do. we be napping? Should we not be? Again, is it bespoke? Should we be listening to ourselves? Well, there's a couple of rules about napping. If you need to nap, well, that indicates that you're not getting the right amount of sleep. Now, that's either that there's something that's going on that's disrupting your sleep at night that you may not be aware of, or it might be the fact that you, you know, voluntarily are sacrificing a lot of sleep. What we tend to say is, if you're going to nap half an hour or less... So you don't go into a full sleep cycle. We all know what it's like when we've had one of those naps that's been a little bit longer than half an hour. You, you want to kill up. someone. Absolutely. <laughs> Every time. I was going to say, you feel a bit groggy. But no, <laughs> full on, get out there and kill someone. <laughs> that's what we call sleep inertia. So half an hour or less. Half an hour or less. Or you'll hit the sleep inertia. Or you'll hit sleep inertia. Or you go for a full 90 minutes. So Ooh. you do one whole sleep cycle. The other thing that you've got to be mindful of is when you do it. So we actually start putting our PJs on, our wonderful silk PJs that we've just bought. We actually put them on around four o'clock in the afternoon. That's when we stop producing cortisol, we start producing melatonin, and we're getting ourselves ready for bed. If you start then napping at that point, you think you're going to sleep. And so what will tend to happen is that will then take off the time that you're going to get off to bed at night. So it it's sort of destroys the drive to sleep. Mm. So I always say earlier is better because it's not going to destroy the drive to sleep and keep it short or make it one cycle. So every now and then a, a little party nap. Absolutely. A little party oh, nap. I love a little disco. <laughs> Isn't it interesting? So we don't have in, in Britain, we don't have a culture of siestas. No. Is the idea of siestas dying out now as people are cramming more things in? Because theirs was always after lunch, wasn't it? That's right. And heat I, of the day. Yeah, heat of the day. It was No actually, worries about that here. <laughs> no, 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 certainly not. I go to bed with a hot water bottle. <laughs> but what we're seeing now is that People are not using those siestas to sleep. They're using them to catch up on things and they're making lunches last longer. And so 
that whole function around actually in the heat of the day, just taking some time out, has actually become part of people's routines about cramming more in. Can I ask you, in this world of travelling lots and lots, mm. just one quick last question on jet lag. Ah, oh, my favourite. It's not a small subject, is it, it's the jet not. lag? What are your top tips when someone has to fly and they have to get straight off and work or coming back from holiday? You know how we try and squeeze in that last fly back on the day before you come in because yes. you want to get that last oh, yeah. day in the sun. Yep. What should we do when we're you know, jet lagged, jet lagged? It's about food. Food. We use food. It all comes back to food, doesn't it? It all comes back to food. So for many, many years, we believed that there is a central clock in our brain that controls the melatonin and the cortisol. And very recently, we discovered that we've got mini clocks all over our body. So in the heart, liver, kidney, pancreas. And so you can actually use food to offset the main clock for a bit. Now, that sounds a bit odd. But if you think about it this way, you're flying to a new location. If you start eating as if you were in that location the day before, it'll actually offset that clock just for that day. And therefore, it will alleviate a lot of that jet lag. So it's actually about food and when you eat, as opposed to, you know, getting sleep the night before. That's great. But, you know, we are going to be deprived of sleep on a flight. Mm. It's very difficult. So I would always use food. And also when you get on the, the airplane, have your silk pyjamas and silk oh, eye masks well, just oh, to help yeah. yourself along a bit more. Absolutely. <laughs> We've got it sorted. Thank you so much, Professor Jason Ellis, <laughs> Kate Faithful Williams, two amazing names. Um, that's Jason Ellis, author of The One Week Insomnia Cure, and Kate Faithful Williams, author of The Feel Good Plan. We could talk all day. I can't believe how quickly that's gone by. And I'm very much looking forward to getting into bed tonight. <laughs> and thinking about you <laughs> and not unsettling at all no. no and I will remember to um, limit my cognitive arousal mm-hmm. and do really nice things a huge thanks again to my guests and also to Matthew Walker author of Why We Sleep you can find out more about the authors on the show over at virgin.com plus we've got more motivational podcasts and tips for you We'd love to hear how this show might have inspired you to live life better. So get involved with the conversation on Twitter at Penguin Living UK using the hashtag Live Life Better. Live Life Better is a Pixie production for Virgin and Penguin Living. Join us again in two weeks' time. From me, Melissa Hemsley, goodbye and good night. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.